episode 22. God bless you. Welcome to another episode of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van, the podcast that brings you brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. I'm Kirk Van Odeham, your host for this podcast, and I'm looking forward to answering yet another question that was submitted uh, by a listener uh, to Bible FAQ. Before I get going uh, with the question for today, just remind you, if you want to submit a question, you're welcome and encouraged to do so. Our website is kirkvan.com. Our Facebook is Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. And our email is question at kirkvan.com. I also briefly wanted to mention and uh, remind you, or perhaps inform you if you didn't know, that Bible FAQ is uh available as an audio podcast and this was the original vision uh, for uh, the project we're glad for our many facebook uh, users that we have uh, but we do also want to advertise and promote the audio podcast and so many don't know i know because i've been asked by more than a few people um, well how do you get a podcast how do you listen to it well if you're going to do so on your mobile phone which seems to be the uh, easiest and most popular way these days. If you have an iPhone, you probably already have Apple Podcast of, uh, app, Apple Podcast app. If you don't, you can download that from the App Store. Or if you have a uh, Android phone, you may already have the Google Podcasts app. If you don't, you can download that from the Play Store. Just make sure it's the Google one because there's many podcast apps. Or if you have another podcast app that you like, there's dozens of them. They all, most of them will work just fine. Uh, and either way, whether you have Apple or Google podcast app, just go into the app, search for Bible FAQ with Kirk Van, and you should be able to find it. If you have any difficulty, which I don't suspect you will, but go to our website, kirkvan.com, click on the podcast link. You can do that right from your mobile phone. And there will be a link to the appropriate page for the different apps and services, and you can go right to it. Of course, you'll want to click on the subscribe button so it'll be readily accessible the next time you want to try to listen. We've got some time to kill. And then, of course, you won't have to look at my ugly face. You'll only have to listen to my annoying voice. So we're so thankful for everybody who's tuned into the podcast, or if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, uh, watch. We're very uh, happy to have you join us as well. Well, I want to get into the question for today. This question is sent to me uh, over Facebook uh, from a listener named Haley from Parts Unknown. And Haley writes this, Hello, Brother Kirk. I have a topic I'd like to see addressed fully. The Bible and medical marijuana in all forms, not just smoking. We all know that that's unhealthy. It may take some research. I've yet to see or hear anyone tackle the topic as a whole. People are so worried about smoking it, but there are more ways to medicate. It is legal in some states. It is a plant without chemicals versus man-made medicines. Do people think it's wrong because it was made illegal in the 1800s? Or we're told it was the devil's lettuce and made from evil. Do the benefits outweigh what we've been taught? And correlation with the word first and foremost. 
Well, Haley, thank you for the question. This certainly is a hot topic in our culture today. Uh, you know, drugs in general are a hot topic. Uh, how we should view them and how we should deal with them in our society. You know, some countries have taken to legalizing all drugs. In this country, we've at least experimenting with legalizing marijuana, not just for medical use, but um, as all of our listeners will know, for recreational use already in some states. And it's kind of ironic because we are living at a time of a major drug crisis, this opioid crisis that is the worst um, that we've ever seen in, in society. And so, you know, there's debates about legalization of drugs, specifically marijuana, as this question mentioned, for medical and recreational purposes. There are lots of different views, not all of which are well-informed, of course. So it's tough for some people to know exactly what to think because we're getting, getting a lot of conflicting information, uh, a lot of bias, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, advocacy one way or the other. I'm certainly not an expert. I like to think I'm as well-informed as most citizens. Uh, so my primary concern, of course, is as a student of the Bible, I'm more interested in the moral arguments that stem from the Word of God. So that's primarily where I'll be focusing today. However, I will address the other specific questions that have been asked. I can give you my view, my thought, what little bit I've been able to dig up. And uh, so let's start uh, with the biblical uh, kind of information surrounding the topic of substance use. And then we'll go on to talk about some of the specific uh, aspects of this question that have been asked specifically to marijuana and the medical use of marijuana. So let me start by saying this on uh, in terms of the Bible. The Bible does provide significant direction and guidance in areas such as this that may come as a surprise to some. In general, before we start talking about substance use, let's just talk about general principle here that are important to understand. There's two primary ways that the Bible provides us with direction. The first is direct biblical instruction. I think of this as the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. In other words, clear stands on specific practices or behaviors or topics. There's things that clearly come from a normal reading of Scripture. That's one way, and the Bible has a good amount of instruction in that way. But also, and we should not minimize this, Another way in which the, the Bible provides us with direction is the practical application of biblical principles and values. Now, these are necessarily much wider in scope, um, but we must remember that the Scripture is not merely a book of rules, although it does contain many immutable commandments. It's also a book of great wisdom uh, that can help us and guide us when we apply its precepts to our lives and the circumstances of the world in which we live. Of course, the Bible couldn't possibly, uh, it would have to be many, many volumes uh, in size to possibly cover every question uh, that we could raise, especially those questions that are contemporary topics uh, that weren't uh, issues in the time in which the Bible was written. So uh, the Bible God, the author of the Bible, took a much wiser, uh, much more practical approach and to provide uh, biblical principles, values, precepts that we can investigate 
analyze and apply to different situations to the questions that we have. And it's also important to know that when the Bible prohibits or discourages something, there's a good reason for it. It's also true that when the Bible commands or encourages something, there's a good reason for that also. Even if we don't always realize uh, the reason completely or comprehend it fully, God has his reasons. Uh, he's not arbitrary or capricious in his bestowal of moral principles. Uh, God's certainly not a maniacal dictator who enjoys in controlling us, as some have portrayed him, unfortunately. Rather, God always has a purpose. We might not fully comprehend his ways, but there are some things we do know. For example, we do know that he acts out of his compassion and concern and love for us. He acts in a way that he is protecting us from harm uh, and from uh, pain and to help us to, to grow and to thrive. Uh, I think ultimately God wants us to live a blessed, happy, successful life, one that's as free from as much unnecessary harm and pain and trouble. I say unnecessary because a certain amount of suffering is indicative of life and even uh, fruitful uh, to our growth and development, but God wants us to be blessed and happy as a general rule. And so that brings us to the case of drugs and substance use in the Bible. Now, it may surprise some to know that the Bible does contain at least some clear instruction, uh, although per not not perhaps as much as some would like, but even more so, as I mentioned, the Bible definitely provides a considerable amount of related principles and values for us to apply, and these should inform us and shape our views greatly, in this case about the use of substances and what we should do with that. So let's address the biblical information here, and uh, I'll make five arguments or five points from Scripture here. And the first is that drug use and, uh, is directly condemned and forbidden by name in Scripture, in the New Testament nonetheless. Uh, some don't realize this, and uh, it's kind of a uh, translation uh, kind of a topic here that we have to get into, but it is directly condemned and forbidden by name. In Galatians chapter number 5, uh, nine, verses 19 through 21 document what we commonly refer to as the works of the flesh. This is a list of 17 different things, 17 different practices uh, that the Bible concludes, they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I won't take the time to read the whole scripture. There's 17 different things. You can read that for yourself. Again, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The sixth item in the list, at least in the King James Version here, the Greek word here is pharmakia. And as you can probably hear, that's where we kind of get the root uh, word for uh, linguistically for words like pharmacy or pharmaceutical from this Greek word pharmakia. Now, generally it's translated as witchcraft or sorceries in many of the English translations, but this is kind of an unfortunate translation. At the very least, it's incomplete, not fully representative of the normal and common alternatives of the usage of this Greek term, certainly not the literal usage of the term. So let me tell you what it means here from a few different dictionaries or what we call Greek lexicons. Uh, one that's called Mounts' lexicon is 
This term pharmakia means the employment of drugs for any purpose. Thayer's lexicon tells us that the literal definition is the use or the administering of drugs. Lydell, Scott, and Jones lists the definition as use of any kind of drugs. And this last lexicon is actually one that doesn't just cover Bible terminology and vocabulary, but also uh, catalogs all that we know from the entire ancient Greek library. So it lists at least seven different classical Greek works that use this word pharmakia in the sense of administration or use of any kind of drugs other than the term that's used in the Bible here in Galatians 5. And so it is true that pharmakia can also refer to sorcery or magic arts, but this is precisely because of the link between sorcery and, or witchcraft historically and the use of mind-altering substances. In other words, they, they were closely correlated or connected, so we can understand that why some, uh, when they thought of the use of substances, they labeled it as sorcery or witchcraft. Of course, sorcery or witchcraft, also known as divination or enchantments, etc., in scripture, is directly linked to paganism, that is, idolatrous religion. But it is interesting that idolatry is already mentioned in this list in Galatians 5. So if it's meant to be, you know, refer to some kind of idolatrous practice, such as witchcraft or sorcery, it seems like it would be covered under that. So to me, that strengthens the case that witchcraft or sorcery may not be the intended meaning in the best translation. Even if we knew for sure that witchcraft or sorcery was the best translation, which we don't, but even if we knew that for sure, in this context, rather than, rather than drug use, as I'm proposing here, this does not negate the fact that administering of drugs was a major practice associated with these activities. And so even if we read the King James and witchery and sourcecraft, drugs and the administration of drugs is also in view here because it was a part of that practice. And, uh, and I'll close on this point, uh, on this for this first point, there are English translations that do recognize and capture the meaning of this interpretation of pharmakia to pertain to the use of drugs. I just hopped on Bible Gateway and looked at the English translations they have available there. They're probably the most popular and common that we, we have. And three of the English translation there did render the term pharmakia, one as involvement with drugs, and two others just simply uh, in, in the text of the Bible itself have the word drug use in the place as a translation for the word pharmakia drug use instead of witchcraft. So the bottom line that is, is that we do in fact have a clear and direct biblical teaching confirming or validating that drug use is sinful, whether it's linked to witchcraft or whether it's just on, translated on its own. Uh, either way, uh, the Bible confirms that the use of illicit drugs, harmful drugs, is sinful. So the second point I want to make is that the Bible addresses the principles or the practice of intoxication in other ways. And we can appropriately apply this to the use of substances in our times. Three times the New Testament directly forbids or condemns uh, this concept encapsulated by the Greek word methe. Other forms of this word are used about a, another dozen times. Uh, 
Uh, so we're talking about 15 times total in the New Testament. Uh, this word methe, it's mentioned uh, also in addition to drug use. This word methe is also used in conjunction with the lusts of the flesh in Galatians number five. Now the Greek lexicon strong defines it as an intoxication or an intoxicant, intoxication or drunkenness. Thayer uh, defines it as intoxication or drunkenness. Now, most English translations rightly render the term drunkenness, but this is mostly due to the fact that alcohol was the most available or common, certainly the most abused intoxicant in the culture of Bible times. That's not to preclude any immorality or wickedness associated with being under the influence of other substances as well, but seeing that that was the most common one, it seemed like the most appropriate translation for the context. But the Greek word methe certainly does imply or encompass, I should say, uh, other intoxicants as well. Juxtaposed to this principle of intoxication is the principle of the Greek word nepho. Nepho is found at least four times in the New Testament. It's most often translated as sober. So it says, don't be intoxicated, but make sure that you are nepho, sober. It has the basic meaning of being watchful or discreet or circumstance, especially in our minds, or circumspect rather, especially in our minds. But uh, it's used specifically with respect to abstaining from intoxicating substances, uh, certainly such as alcohol, but others as well, as we already mentioned. And in addition to these, uh, these principles these, uh, that we find throughout the Word of God, refraining from intoxicating substances, making sure that you're free from them and being sober, uh, so here, we, you know, the, the case is building. In addition to these, there are other verses that contain other terms and phrases other than these that also teach us to avoid intoxicating substances. So the bottom line is that of this principle is that any substance that has the potential to lead to intoxication, that is to impairment of our faculties, should be avoided. Uh, in fact, is commanded to be avoided. That is the wisdom of Scripture from these many verses that we just mentioned. Now, the third uh, principle that I want to bring to you is that the Bible also warns us about things in life that can control us or bring us under bondage. Uh, the potential for addiction to substances certainly would fit within the precept of this warning. For example, 1 Corinthians 6 and 12 warns us about things that have the power, uh, that have the potential rather to have power over us, or in other words, to have control over us, to dominate us. In the same vein, the New Testament uses the, the Greek term epithumia, uh, if I pronounce that correctly, uh, about 35 times. So this is a word that's used a lot. Uh, this Greek word uh, has the meaning of craving or longing or desire for something that is forbidden. Now, in the King James, it's generally translated lust, but more contemporary versions such as the ESV and the NIV simply translated desire. Now, sometimes it, it, the term is used in connection and in the context of sexual desire, but not always. Uh, the general usage has a much broader meaning uh, and the context needs to dictate to us exactly what it means for that passage. 
But in general, in several of these verses of Scripture, it just means a desire or a craving uh, for something. And when you when when placed in conjunction with this broader biblical idea of being warned against things that have power to control us or to put us in bondage or have power over us, the bottom line is that the of this principle is that anything that has the potential to become an addiction should be avoided. Anything that can make us crave it or or desire it, uh, something that can bring us under its power or control, such as substances, uh, drugs can do. Uh, obviously, the, the, the Christian is warned to stay away from such things. Fourthly, and again, there's five I'll mention here, but the fourth one I want to uh, mention is related to the previous point, but I think it's uh, significant enough to stand on its own, and that is that the Bible extols the virtue of self-control. Self-control, your King James Bible will use the word temperance often. Uh, this Greek word is egratia, and it is used about a half dozen times in various forms. And one of the times is listed in, again, Galatians 5. This time not in the works of the flesh, but the passage that follows it that we call the fruit of the Spirit. So it's, there's 17 things, including drug use and drunkenness or intoxication, that are uh, expressly forbidden. And then there's nine things that we are to strive for, characteristics that we are to incorporate into our life. And in fact, are in fact the evidence that the Holy Spirit is abiding within us. And the very last one listed is self-control. Uh, and so uh, the uses of substances have the potential for affecting our mental state, lowering our inhibitions, if you will. That is the exact opposite of what we're looking to do if we're exercising self-control or other definition is self-restraint. Uh, if we're going to have control over our faculties, if we're going to have control over our cognitions and our mind, uh, then having an intoxicating or a, 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 a substance that's going to lower our inhibitions, is going to uh, damage our cognitions, is not something we want. Another virtually synonymous term, so this term would be a synonym to the one we just mentioned, is the Greek term sophron. It's also translated temperate in the King James Bible and self-control in many of the other modern translations. Sometimes it has the translation of sober in the King James Version, but in a different sense, in the sense not of alcohol, but in the sense of having a sound mind or curbing one's desires or impulses. So again, the bottom line on this point is that Scripture commands us to be in control of our thoughts, to be in control of our minds, to be in control of our actions and behavior. And substance uh, use and abuse is certainly not compatible uh, with our duty to fulfill this precept. Rather, it is diametrically opposed to the spirit of what self-control is supposed to be about. And fifth and finally, I'm sure there's others that we could bring uh, out in this in this consideration of this topic, but the last one I'll bring to you, the fifth and last one, is that the Bible also instructs us regarding the, st our, the stewardship of our bodies, the stewardship of our bodies. In other words, because God created us and because we belong to him and have pledged to serve him, Indeed, if we've been born again, his spirit dwells in us. Because of these things, we should treat our bodies with care and with honor 
and with respect. We should not intentionally harm ourselves or violate our bodies in any way. And of course, there's two rather famous verses of Scripture. I'll read them both, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye, bought, that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. If any man defile the temple of God. I don't know of any more effective way to defile your body physically than the use of illicit substances. It's surely a fast path to doing just that. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, just a few chapters later. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Let me pause there for a moment. You don't belong to yourself. Uh, you're not your own. But verse 20 says, For you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the bottom line here, again, is that we must not defile or violate our bodies, but treat them with care out of honor and respect to God, who A, made us, and B, dwells, dwells in us through the power of his Holy Spirit, and therefore we become his temples, and we must not defile the temple. No, so with these five uh, statements and principles, as a moral background for the biblical argument against the use of substances, um, that should inform us as we look uh, at the other elements of this question that has been submitted. So in short, the question addressed marijuana specifically, so we want to talk about that. Uh, it didn't specifically mention the question of legalization, but since that's a big part of the debate here, we should probably mention that as well. And then the question specifically is concerned with the supposed medical benefits of, uh, of uh, use of marijuana for medicinal purpose and wonders if some are dismissing uh, the medicinal qualities unfairly. So we'll discuss that as well. So once again, disclaimer, this is a bit out of my depth. It's not certainly the focus of my type of study. Uh, but uh, also time won't permit an in-depth expose on all these points, so we'll try to be very basic and try to be, no promises, but try to be somewhat brief as well. So first, on this idea that we've all heard that marijuana is perceived by some more negatively than it deserves, as the question alluded to, it's the devil's lettuce, and they should avoid it, so... Um, that we're biased against it somehow. Let me address that idea, first of all, about exactly you know how we should view marijuana. What does the research and the uh, studies say? Well, you know, some advocates do point out that it's natural or plant-based, therefore inferring it can't be that bad. Uh, some have gone as far to say, you can read this, it's uh, uh, far to say that it's not addictive or not very addictive at least. Uh, you know, I've heard it compared to like caffeine and things like that. Others say it's safe. It's not physically harmful to you like other drugs. For example, uh, some have said it's no more problematic than alcohol or tobacco. And these are substances that, that are legal and used by many. Um, and I'm not advocating for the tobacco or alcohol. I'm just saying others have compared it to that. So I think a big part of the problem here and a part of the disconnect that exists is that people are influenced more heavily by advocates of marijuana than they are by the actual medical and scientific research 
uh, and certainly these groups of advocates have an agenda and they, they are very persuasive and they're uh, probably a louder voice uh, than, than I guess the more scientific approach certainly seem to dominate social media. So of course they're going to ignore or downplay the well-documented harms of marijuana uh, and they're going to tend to promise benefits uh, of you know use or legalization or medical use or whatever. So let's, let's address some of these things. I'll, again, I'll try to be quick. It is true that marijuana comes from cannabis plants, so it is natural in some sense. sense. But most illegal drugs, uh, or at least a good number of other illicit drugs, come from natural plant form as well. For that matter, there's many toxins that are known to mankind that are lethal to humans, but that are natural and plant-based. Uh, to name some drugs, cocaine comes from the leaves of coca plants, so it's also plant-based. Heroin and many of the other uh, opioids that are absolutely ravaging our, our society right now comes from plants, poppy plants. Uh, ecstasy, some may be surprised to know, comes from the root of a sassafras tree, the oil, the chemical in the oil from the root of a sassafras tree, and, and so on and so on. We can name others. So natural or plant-based doesn't mean safe and healthy. In fact, in many cases, as those that I named, is just the opposite is true. Uh, next, it may be true that marijuana is less addictive and less harmful than many other illicit drugs, uh, but it is certainly addictive and it can be very harmful. And, you know, again, I'm not an expert, but I I you know, cite some studies here just very quickly, or, or I should say summarize some study, and I tried to find reputable uh, sources, not just uh, you know biased information here. But studies show that about a third, I should say, I have a third here in my notes, but about 30% of everyone who uses marijuana is addicted to it. About 30% of those who are currently using it are addicted to it, according to the studies we have. Uh, it has many harmful physical and mental cognitive effects. Uh, for example, the physical or the physiological uh, harms include impaired immune system linked to elevated risk of heart attack and stroke, causes respiratory problems, causes brain damage in some cases, as far as the mental and cognitive uh, impairments, it impairs the short-term memory and attention and concentration. In other words, learning and retaining information and performing complex cognitive tasks. And this is not just the case when one is high, but well beyond the period of intoxication, uh, one's cognitive abilities are diminished, including uh, short-term memory, attention, and concentration, sometimes as long as 24 hours after usage. Uh, in high doses, marijuana use can result in anxiety and paranoia and even cause psychotic symptoms or exacerbate existing symptoms of that sort. So uh, as harmful as alcohol and tobacco are, and I don't want to make a positive case for either of those because they are both very harmful, uh, psychologically, medically, uh, health-wise, and, and otherwise, studies show that marijuana use is ex 
actually significantly worse than both tobacco and alcohol. Uh, one marijuana joint is as bad for your lungs as smoking six or seven tobacco cigarettes. So six or seven times more harmful marijuana is than cigarettes. It has significantly higher levels of toxic compounds such as tar and carbon monoxide and ammonia and hydrogen cyanide, not just a little more, significantly more, sometimes three, four, five times the amounts that's found in tobacco. Marijuana is worse than alcohol in several ways. It's far more likely to cause addiction than alcohol. It's consumed to the point of intoxication at higher rates. Alcohol is broken down rather quickly in the body. It's what we call water soluble, while THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, remains in the fatty tissue of the body, including our organs, sometimes for weeks after consumption. So in short, marijuana is worse than alcohol in every way. Addictiveness, toxicity, negative health effects, the risk of intoxication, and the list goes on. So in short, many in our society have been misled in believing that marijuana is less harmful and addictive than is actually the case. And I should say actually the well-documented case. And uh, so that's just a few things about marijuana in general and the perception that it's not that bad. I think it's much worse than people many people at least want to acknowledge. Second, on the question of legalization, because that's a major problem in our society today, we'll talk here just about legalization in general, we'll talk about medical here in a moment, but we'll say for recreation, the case for recreational legalization. So again, advocates will tell you that the benefits or the, at least the potential or hypothetical benefits outweigh the risks and the cost to the public. For example, advocates will cite, we can raise tax revenues and that will benefit anyone. Uh, the reduction in the cost of legal enforcement will give us even more money to spend. So the, the net result of these two effects, people say, we can use the money to spend on, on treatment and education. So legalizing marijuana, they will try to tell you, will actually result in reducing its overall use, or at least that's the hope. Uh, they'll say that there's better controls or regulation over sales and distribution if it were legalized because we can control it that way and therefore it will be less of a public health risk if there's better controls over it. And they'll also tell you in all these things, if you legalize it, we'll see a reduction in crime associated with the use of marijuana. So that's the, that's the case anyway. That's what they want to tell you. And I'll try to address these each very quickly. So for example, uh, the first state that, that legalized uh, recreational use of marijuana was, of course, Colorado. And after five years, they did a study, and here's some of the results that they found. So the, the advocates of, of the legalization, they celebrated when the, the state of Colorado reached a million dollars of tax revenue, excuse me, not a million, a billion dollars of tax revenue. They celebrated this. They said, see, this is a billion dollars that we have to spend on public services and, uh, and uh, what, what have you that we wouldn't have had if we wouldn't have legalized mar marijuana. So we did the right thing. Look at all this money we, we have now. What they don't tell you is that that is less than 1% of the state budget during the same time period. So it's a drop in the bucket. And also what they don't address, the study just looked at the impact of, of the 
legalization, but they didn't disclose the state's uh, costs for regulation and controls and enforcement that they didn't previously have in the same time. So some have actually speculated, since we don't know those numbers, that there's actually been a net loss in revenue, even though they gained a billion dollars in tax revenue. Advocates promised a reduction in crime, or at least they speculated that they hoped that would be the case. And of course, when the study was done, they were celebrating the facts that arrests uh, uh, pertaining to marijuana had dropped by 50%. So that's good news, right? Well, isn't that what we would expect if you make something legal? So simple possession is not a crime anymore. Consumption is not a crime anymore. So we would expect the arrest to drop by a lot. That's not exactly good news. It's just, it is what it is. That's part, that's part of the package. But what they don't tell you and what they don't want you to know is that the illegal cultivation of marijuana, that which was not legal and not under the legal process that they, uh, that they set up, Legal, illegal cultivation increased by a whopping 73%. And that's the illegal cultivation that they know of, that they caught. And they, they say this is an important indicator to the size of the black market. In other words, the, the extent of, of crime that's taking place as a result of illegal uh, marijuana cultivation. Uh, and they also had said that the organized crime cases in the legal system uh, had tripled in the first five years of legalization of marijuana. Also, as they saw a significant rise among youth or adolescents who use marijuana, which for that age group is illegal. So we saw a spike in crime in that sense as well, and significant increase also in drug-related school suspensions and expulsion rates. So rather than seeing a reduction in crime, we saw a dramatic increase of crime as a result of legalization. The advocates of legalization told us that they would hope that the public health and safety would improve from legalization, and that because it would result in more responsible use and also more money for treatment and education and that sort of thing. So they thought, you know, this is going to be good for public health and safety. Maybe, they said, maybe even a reduction in the use of, of drugs and marijuana and other drugs as a result of legalization. But what they found after five years of studying it was the exact opposite. Instead of a reduction in use, they found a significant increase in use among adults. In other words, a higher percentage of adults uh, used it post-legalization than prior to legalization. And among those who, who uh, are using marijuana, that there's an increase in frequency with which they use the drug. So more people are using it and they're using it more frequently. There's also a significant increase in emergency health services due to marijuana use. For, use. for example, uh, emergency room uh, visits, poison control, uh, calls, hospitalization as a result of ma uh, marijuana use. So again, not a decrease in public, or not, not greater public health and safety, but a significant uh, drop in public health and safety. Uh, added to that, there was a significant increase in driving under the influence incidents that involved marijuana after it was legalized. So people weren't using it more responsibly, actually less responsibly because more people were using it more frequently. 
So all of this, and we still don't know the complete long-term toll that this will take, but it's not looking promising. Uh, it's not looking promising at all. And again, I, I, I understand that there's different arguments here. I understand that it's possible. I'm not saying this is my view, but I understand it's possible for some people to be uh, you know, morally uh, or spiritually opposed to the use of marijuana, but at the same time have political views that would favor legalization because they have more libertarian views of the role of government and personal liberty and responsibility and that sort of thing. So I'm not saying people who want legalization are just dumb. There's different reasons why people are for that. But what I am saying is that early indicators are not looking promising for the advocates of legalization in terms of the of the promises or the supposed benefits that they thought they would reap from it. And third and finally, and this gets more to the heart of the question that uh, was submitted uh, on the topic of the medical use of marijuana, the medical use of marijuana. Now, in my humble opinion, the level of public manipulation and misinformation surrounding medical marijuana is astounding. Uh, for example, it seems that there's somewhat popular and going, growing perception among a certain demographic that cannabis uh, plant is some sort of miraculous wonder that contains all sorts of medicinal healing properties. And there seems to be a somewhat widespread perception among that same group that there's been some sort of a major conspiracy to withhold the miraculous healing power from the masses. And honestly, I think a lot, of, of course, I'm being a bit facetious, but that's not far off from some of the propaganda I've seen. Uh, honestly, I think that a lot of the hype and misinformation has been deliberately perpetuated by recreational use advocates. That's my suspicion uh, with the mindset that if we can, you know, if we can win the medical marijuana war and change the public perception that marijuana is actually a good thing, uh, then we can get it legalized easier. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing happen because medical marijuana debate seems to be declining now that the recreational use debate has worked its way into the mainstream discussion. But I digress. Uh, it is true that restrictions on testing were somewhat complicated by federal laws, but that's not tantamount to a conspiracy to keep it away for medical use uh, because we know that medical research with cannabinoids has been taking place for decades. And uh, But what some don't want to hear, but is, the, the again, the, the result of research, is that the results have been extremely underwhelming. There's not much evidence that marijuana contains the amazing medical properties that we've been told by some. It's not the cure-all that we've been promised. In fact, it's not been found to be a cure uh, for any kind of disease or, or, or illness or condition or anything like that. At best, they found it helps with the symptomology of a few different ailments. Uh, reduce symptoms to help control symptoms, but doesn't doesn't have any healing properties per se. Now that doesn't mean it's useless for medicine, and I'm sure we've got more to learn, and we shouldn't we could should continue to study it and research it. But it seems that the potential benefits for medical use have been significantly exaggerated from what we know now. Now let me make this clear. 
I don't personally think that there is much objection to medical research and development or even medical use of marijuana by most people. What many people do object to is the idea and practice of approving medical marijuana use through voter referendums or legislative process or some other means. Why, why is that only for marijuana? Why don't we have a vote whether you know, the next cancer treatment should be, should be made available or the next, you know, pick your condition. Why is it only medical marijuana that we put in place through voter referendums and that we have a special approval process for? Many people like myself are uh, at, least, at least hypothetically in favor of any medical research that has, you know, pro that has the potential to help people and be promising. But we want to see uh, any medical use of marijuana undergo the same rigorous approval process that any other medication has to go through. Basically, let the FDA manage the process like every other medication and even every other kinds of supplements. Why should marijuana be an exception? It just seems bizarre to me, uh, especially in the midst of this opioid crisis where the uh, we've been told one thing, and we, the the risks have been um, significantly uh, undersold, and we're in and we're in a bad situation now. Why the rush to have this substance be pushed out and made available to the masses, and not even go undergo the normal approval processes and testing and development that it should go through. The approval process should include research and testing and development. It should include regulatory standards and oversight for production and distribution like any other medication. Uh, for example, right now, medical marijuana dispensaries are not subject to a central regulatory or oversight process. And that's a public health risk. Uh, why should it not be subject to the same protections as, as say, penicillin or anything else? Now, someone could, you know, and some people do make the case, well, the FTA is too slow and they're too restricting and they don't allow, you know, testing on, on humans as much as they should and this and that. Well, that, that, that may be true to some degree. I don't know. But that would be a case for improving the system not making marijuana the one and only exception to the system and not any other medication or drug. So, you know, so people who are opposed to medical marijuana are not imposed, they're opposed to the process by which it's being shoved through and the exception that it's being applied to it, not to, not to, the, to the promise of any potential actual medical benefit that we could, uh, that we could have as a, as a society. And another objection that people have with uh, medical marijuana is the smoking of it for medicinal purposes. It's the only drug that is smoked for purported medical reasons. I won't go over all the deleterious health effects again, but this is just a terrible idea that smoking a substance uh, would be beneficial for one's health and healing as medicine. Anyone who believes that, that, that that's a good idea is just not paying attention or is willfully ignoring the facts of how harmful it is to us. Yes, I know that there's a few medical doctors out there that support prescribing medical marijuana, but they're relatively few and far between. And, and you know, what can I say? 
again, willful ignoring of the facts and also probably following the money trail if I can be a little bit skeptical here. Uh, so, and you know, a part of this objection, which is supported by the data, by the way, is that there is a great suspicion uh, that this medical use in many cases is just a cover for recreational use. It's a legal loophole. And in fact, there's some studies that, uh, that point to the, uh, uh, the practice that 90 to 95% of medical marijuana is prescribed for nonspecific pain, despite the fact that actual research-based evidence of marijuana uh, is reducing non-neuropathic pain uh, is just not sufficient to justify the medical risks for smoking it. Uh, there are other, vi and here, here, here's part of the problem, and here's why people are skeptical, and here's what people object to. There are other viable uh, ways to administer THC, the active ingredient in, in cannabis, marijuana plant, uh, nebulization is, is a great way. It would be similar to, I, I guess, vaping in some ways. Um, and I, we're being told that vaping is, is, is dangerous in many ways because that's of the chemicals involved, but they can nebulize HTC and it'd be much safer than smoking it. And it would be, you know, people take nebulization treatments all the time for asthma and a bunch of other respiratory uh, issues that could nebulize THC as well, and it would be just as effective as entering to your drugstream just as quickly. Uh, there's sprays, uh, oral sprays. There's pills, which are a little slower but better for certain things from what I've been told. In the few conditions in which marijuana has been formally recognized to be beneficial for reducing symptoms, it could just as easily be administered in ways that pose less risk than smoking and, and utilize standardized FDA-regulated pharmacies that ensure proper purity, quality, concentration, dosage, and all that sort of thing. So it's not that so many people are just saying, no, marijuana is evil. We can't ever use it for medicine. It's like, hey, this is the, the process is ridiculous. The idea that it has to be smoked is not medically substantiated. We don't even know for sure that it does anything for many of the indications that it's being prescribed for. Let's slow down and do this the right way. If it has real medicinal value, many of us would be in favor of it in many respects, but not the way it's being promoted in society. As I said, the general public has been led to believe in some evil conspiracy against marijuana, that the powers that be just won't let us use it. And so those people would be very surprised to know that there are several FDA-approved drugs on the market right now uh, made from marijuana, THC-based products that are available for a variety of indications and conditions. There's Meridol and Sesmet, uh, which are both used to treat nausea and lack of appetite related to chemotherapy in, and also in some AIDS patients. There's Epidolex which is used in, for treatment of some form of epilepsy. There's Sativex, which is an oral spray that's used in the treatment of pain associated with certain forms of cancer, including breast cancer, and treatment for muscle spasms associated with multiple sclerosis and other uh, related ailments. And there's also many other clinical trials are underway for additional THC-based medications for 
lots of different conditions, Alzheimer's, autisms, cancer, chronic pain, epilepsy, digestive disorders, multiple sclerosis, schizophrenia, and others. As again, it's the evidence right now is a bit underwhelming, and there's no, uh, you know, it, reason to get excited that this will yield anything better than medications that we already have for these things, but they are uh, going through the proper paces, the proper approval channels to get these types of drugs to the market if in fact they'll be beneficial. We don't need people smoking marijuana for medical use uh, when all this other is in the works. So to get back to the question in terms of biblical or moral objections to medical use, I don't know many Christians who would object in some sort of religious uh, way with the caveat that I mentioned about the prof proper approval processes, et cetera, et cetera, using it and administering it in a way that, that is uh, standard with medical practice and that sort of thing. Um, I'm sure there are some that do object. I would think, I don't know, that they're relatively few in number of those that object on a purely religious basis with the caveats that I mentioned, or perhaps they just don't have a good education on the issues that I've outlined, or perhaps some are just stubborn and obstinate. <laughs> I don't know. So in summary, the, the biblical argument against the use of drugs and other substances is, is, in general is very sound. Uh, and I named, listed those five things that I won't go through again here, uh, but it's very sound in general. Regarding marijuana specifically and some of the issues we face today, it is a drug that is both harmful and addictive. There are many legitimate concerns and objections to legalization, and I don't believe most rational people object to marijuana-based medicine in general, morally, biblically, or otherwise, as long as it undergoes the same rigorous approval process, regulatory standards, administration processes that every other medication and potential medication must undergo. So it's certainly a controversial and heavily debated topic. Many will surely disagree with me, and you're welcome to do that, but I hope I've given you some positive things to consider, especially concerning the biblical information and the moral argument against the use of intoxicated substances, including marijuana. That is, of course, excluding any legitimate, appropriate, responsible medical use under the controlled conditions that I discussed. So, gone over my time, but I am uh, glad that I covered this topic. It was interesting to me, and I hope you found it interesting as well. So that's all the time we'll take for today. So until next time. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Thank you for listening to Bible FAQ. Farewell for now.